I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. COVID-19 cases continue to rise across Canada, and so does the sense of urgency felt by healthcare providers and public health officials. It's become clear to many that at this point, the only way to stop the virus from choking the healthcare system is to bring in tough restrictions to slow its spread. Politicians in several hard-hit provinces have been reluctant to do that, but things are changing this week. In Toronto and nearby Peel region, local public health officials are restricting indoor dining and asking people not to socialize outside of their own households. Manitoba is locking down all but essential businesses and banning social gatherings. Dozens of physicians in both Saskatchewan and Alberta are issuing pleas to their provincial governments to take similar action. The Alberta doctors say that a short, sharp lockdown, known as a circuit breaker, is the only way to slow the pandemic surge they're seeing now. One of those physicians is Dr. Lenora Saxinger, an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. Dr. Saxinger is also a frequent guest on The Dose, so we've asked her to come back to answer the question, what's a COVID circuit breaker and how can it help get control of the pandemic? Hi, Lenora. Welcome back to The Dose. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the situation in your home province. Like so many other places, COVID spread seemed to settle down in the summer, but now you and your colleagues have sent a letter to the Alberta government. Why'd you do that? I think our perception is that although we kind of had a stable but slightly unacceptable level of cases for quite a long time, maybe it's complacency, maybe it's moving inside, those numbers start to increase in in a really rapid fashion. Really, we started seeing signs of that in October. Um, and it became clear that although early in October there were requests from uh, Dr. Hinshaw, our uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health, to voluntarily restrict activities and there was messaging around that, it really didn't appear to be having enough of an impact. And at the moment, we're really looking at a pinch point in the intensive care units pretty imminently. And, and frankly, everyone's already tired demoralized and uh, it's a really difficult thing to, to stare at the face of when we actually haven't really seen an effective control in the community yet. Can you paint me a picture of what that pinch point looks like in intensive care units and hospitals across Alberta as we speak? Well, if you look at the graph of how hospitalizations and ICU patients are going up, it's going up very sharply with not even a tiny hint of a blunting. And so on the current trajectory, even if we actually were able to magically snuff out transmission of COVID in the community tomorrow, we're still going to run into trouble in ICU and hospitals. And we're already having to um, delay elective surgeries because we need to reserve hospital space. And some major surgeries that might need ICU stay after are also being deferred. So we've already been doing that. And we're not really seeing that the train is slowing down. So you've asked for a circuit breaker. First of all, what does that mean exactly? 
Well, the, the concept of circuit breaker I saw in some documentation from the UK. Their scientific advisory group uh, had actually identified some literature, mostly modeling papers, that look at this concept of, of avoiding, I guess, the lockdown phobia, which I think understandably people have, by actually putting into place a very defined harsh, sharp shock lockdown that would hopefully interrupt transmission enough that we can kind of dial back our numbers and start to get a better handle on contact tracing and buy a little bit of time for both the healthcare system and also for public health to start planning what what um, strategic restrictions are really needed. Because right now, we, we actually are kind of flying blind on where transmission is happening as well. So is it a lockdown without calling it a lockdown? I think I would call it a different brand of lockdown. To me, when we talk about lockdown, I mean, for one thing, it sounds kind of punitive. And honestly, I think the concerns people have about doing that are well-founded. It was devastating. And I think there's a whole narrative out there about how the lockdown was worse than the disease, mostly because it actually worked, honestly, in a lot of places. We did not see a huge surge in our hospitals in our first wave. The thing that makes this more attractive, I think, is that psychologically, it's easier to imagine a lockdown that's two or four weeks long. Like you can go hard for that long. You you won't get drawn out into this long limbo of uncertainty and fear. And also from the point of view of businesses, um, I think that's something that's a little bit more, you know, you can plan around that. It's kind of more encompassable to know that there's an end in sight. So what are the things that have to shut down for this uh, really quick defined period of time that we'll get to in a moment to, to qualify it as a circuit breaker? In the absence of a written definition, my, my conception of the circuit breaker from what I've been looking at would be basically be broad enough restrictions on people gathering in enclosed places that you really interrupt transmission. You know, across the country, we're seeing quite varied responses to things like restaurants, gyms, gyms versus fitness classes. There's a lot of, you know, debate about that. To me, just being a somewhat decisive and abrupt person, I would say, well, I think if we're going to do it, you go hard like really shut down things very much like they were in the spring, but with this defined endpoint. The, the issue with a partial lockdown or a partial circuit breaker where you're trying to distribute the lockdown is if you don't have a great handle on where transmission is, you don't get as good a drop in the effective reproductive number, and you don't get as good a drop in the case rates, and then you have to do it for longer. So I, to me, there's some attraction in being at least pretty stringent on the lockdown with the idea that that makes it more likely that it could stay short. Now, in this realm, we're really talking about modeling data based on, you know, what we saw from lockdowns across the world in their first waves. Um, So there, there aren't any guarantees on any side, but I think there's some real intuitive strength to the idea that if you do it effectively, you can maybe do it for a shorter time with a net benefit both for case numbers and hospital preservation, I guess, and also maybe for a net benefit for the economy. You mentioned the reproduction number and a big red flag for epidemiologists and infectious disease experts is that virus reproduction number or R number. You know, we've talked about this measure before on the dose, but could you explain what they mean by reproduction number and the science behind how a circuit breaker can bring that number down? 
Right. So, I mean, reproductive number basically means the number of cases that you'd expect from a current case and that any number above one, you're going to see growth, um, which by definition would be exponential, either slower or, or, or fast in the epidemic. And that's independent of the number of cases. So you can have a very high um, reproductive number with a very low number of cases, but you'll see that case number explode dramatically. On the other side of it, if you have a pretty high case number, you can run a very modest R value above one, and it still is a devastating scenario, which is kind of where we are right now. Like our R number has been kind of between one and 1.2 by the uh, provincial data, which sounds like that's not that bad, except if you're actually pulling 500 to 1,000 cases a day, you are getting 500 to 1,000 and more cases a day. And that will still crush our healthcare system and it will still result in excess deaths. So the idea of a circuit breaker is if you basically deny the virus the chance to spread to more people, the reproductive numbers in some cases with a, with a stringent lockdown drops dramatically down to like 0.2. So, you know, one person would not even affect another person. Um, you'd get one infection for every five infections, something like that. And that actually really can reset the scenario quite quickly and really blunt the effect of the uh, epidemic later. One, one issue also is the timing of this is so important because if you're in a, in a high number of cases in a growth phase, the effect of basically stopping transmission takes another you know, week to three weeks to make it through the healthcare system impact. So even if we um, stopped everything, we're still going to see problems, even if we drop the R. And if we don't, those problems are going to be bigger and they're going to be longer and they're going to be harder um, across the board. I like to put the reproduction number into financial terms because uh, people do tend to care a lot about money. Um, if you had, you know, if your finances were growing at the same rate uh, as uh, 1.2, um, you'd be thrilled because you'd get rich in a, in, in a hurry, wouldn't you? Yeah, that'd be a fantastic investment. Uh, for the virus, it's a fantastic investment right now, right? Which is which is not what we want to do. There is some urgency to drop the R really quickly um, when you're running this many cases a day. I mean, there's places in the U.S. that we're at the position we're in right now, even just a month ago, that are really in terrible, terrible trouble in their healthcare systems right now. To be effective, how long do the restrictions need to last? Or I guess, in other words, how long does it take to break the circuit of virus transmission? It, it really looks like the bare minimum is two weeks. So I think when I conceive of the idea of a circuit breaker, two to four weeks, I think for the best odds, something that's soon and something that's pretty dramatic would be the best thing to do. And I think there's actually another benefit to making it pretty decisive, which is I think a, a decisive move with a time limit actually might help get parts of the population back on board who might no longer be tracking the issue as closely, might not be as aware of what's going on, and might have been lulled into this false sense of complacency. Who did you have in mind when you were talking about people who might not be paying attention? My perception is that back in the spring, everyone was on the edge of their seats watching the daily pressers, and it was a very fearsome time. We were just drowning in images of, of terrible devastation and you know, bruised healthcare worker faces and people dying. And it was, it was terrible. And, and then it all seemed to not be as visible anymore over the summer. And so I think legitimately, there's a group of people who've kind of lost the thread on the seriousness of this. They've been not immersed in it as much, and they've been seeming to get away with doing things pretty normally. So that's one group. 
And I think there's another group that, um, that's been exposed to some information streams that to me are almost like a parallel narrative. They really believe, for example, that this is influenza, when in fact it's tenfold more fatal than influenza, and influenza paralyzes our healthcare system every year, as you know. Um, they, they really feel that the lockdown was overblown and worse than the disease and unnecessary and harmful. And although it was very harmful, it actually did avert some major problems because our projections here in Alberta were pretty much what it was experienced in Quebec, um, honestly, in terms of our projected numbers without a lockdown. So I, I don't think that people recognize that we, in fact, dodged a bullet there. And uh, just so that, that everybody's clear who's, who's listening to us, uh, we know, uh, you know this, the, the idea of a, of a minimum two-week lockdown, maybe four-week lockdown as a circuit breaker is based on knowing what we know about the infection cycle of, of COVID-19, which is roughly two weeks. So we'd want to pass through one or two of those infection cycles uh, before starting to lift restrictions. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry. I kind of never circled back to the biology, so I appreciate you doing that. Last spring, when most of Canada went into full lockdown, schools were closed. And that's not the case right now. You and your colleagues aren't calling for schools to be closed right now. Why not? I I think that we're trying to be data-driven. And there's a bit of a debate. I think things are evolving right now on our, our understanding of schools. But genuinely, at least up until very recently, it looked like schools were reflecting our community transmission. And that, in fact, most schools that had, you know, a label of an outbreak, if you looked, it was a couple of cases that may or may not be linked. And there didn't appear to be transmission amplifying in the school setting. But now there's more transmission everywhere and we are seeing more in the schools. And it's also clearer now that older kids like teens are different than younger kids, which seem to honestly have less risk in most scenarios. So it's trying to balance like what we value as a society. Um, And I think that people are really concerned about the harms of lockdown on our young kids and our kids and youth. And preserving the ability for schools to be open safely really rests on controlling community transmission. Now, if we actually saw a case where there really looked to be amplifying transmission in schools, then I think that we would have to go back to a lockdown. I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to do that, but I think that I'd probably want to base that decision on on data because I think the, the harms of closing schools are also very considerable. What you're saying underscores the need to hew to science, to, to, to make sure that whatever decisions are being made, that these aren't arbitrary decisions, they're being made based on the best available scientific evidence. Exactly. And that's why things keep on seeming more confusing because um, the rules are seeming to change. But a lot of the time, those are changing in response to things that we're learning. And the whole goal is to learn enough so that we can finesse our way through to vaccine availability in the middle of next year with the minimal disruption, minimalized loss, minimal impairment of needed health care, minimal death toll. All those things are goals that we're trying to balance. And it's, it's really difficult because it is an evolving body of knowledge and we have to learn as we go. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandeville disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. So if these circuit breaker measures are put in place, what kinds of metrics will you need to see before you'd say it's safe to ease up on the circuit breaker restrictions? 
Geez, you totally asked the tough questions. I'm hoping that someone else will have gone through this before we get to that point. Um, but I actually think that you'd be looking for um, the percent positivity, the R value, and the daily case rate all to drop. And you'd want it to drop in a pattern that would be akin to what's been seen in the modeling studies. And so we would be able to compare that to the models. And um, well, not we, but they, um, and, uh, and see if it looks like it's having the desired effect. So it's going to just be a straight up numbers game. At the end of the day, you're just going to be looking for a really obvious blip um, or dip on the graph that tells us that we've dialed back the clock a bit. And during that time, the other thing that would be important would be to try to make sure that we're resourcing our contact tracing enough. I, I think it's been clear that that's crucial for a long time, but I know a lot of places have been kind of behind the eight ball and resourcing it. If we don't have that in place, it becomes really hard to imagine how we can target the restrictions to the places that are having more trouble. And that's, that's really a goal. Like we don't want to have everyone, you know, on interminable restrictions when in fact the problems are fairly localized, right? We'd like to be able to, to diagnose where the transmission is and treat that transmission, but we're not quite there yet. Can you tell me a bit more about contact tracing and where you think it's falling down? I think it just got overwhelmed. You know, it takes quite a long time to do the contact tracing. And I was really alarmed because, you know, they'd be calling people who had started to feel a little bit unwell, had been more or less out and about, had decided to get a test, continued being out and about until the test came back positive. And so they'd have 10 or 20 contacts. Well, they actually considered that they might have COVID. And that's that's not okay. Like we can't do that. And so I think the risk perception has dropped. And I think the messaging around, no, we really have to keep to our household bubbles and really budget our social interactions for the, you know, the best benefit with the least number of people with the least number of times in face-to-face -face contact. And, and I think that that message had gotten really diluted. Now let's get back to testing capacity. Does that need to catch up as well? You know, just the fact that our percent positivity has been climbing, like it's actually, it's, it's actually one of the single worst numbers I'm looking at right now is it, it in some areas it's approaching 10%. So one of every 10 tests done roughly is positive. That tells you that we're not testing enough. Now, I don't think it's necessarily a problem of capacity at the testing centers or at the lab because our lab has been heroic and they've, they've had really good surge capacity in the past, but people, it seems more to me like it's not a lab bottleneck. It's more like getting people tested bottleneck. I don't know if that means people are reluctant to test or, or what the bottleneck might be, but I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, the timeliness of the testing also has fluctuated a little bit. I think most of it is coming back within a couple of days, but we have to make sure that people are isolating while they're waiting. And that seemed to be a challenge too. So there's a whole bunch of weak links along the way that I'm worried about. And while we're trying to square the circle, we were talking about the kinds of metrics that you need to see before you, you'd you say that it's safe to ease up on restrictions. That R number, which has stubbornly been above 1, 1 1.2, you want it to be how low? 0 0.7, 0 0.6, 0 0.5? What number? Hmm. Oh, boy. Bringing it down to like 0.5 would be fantastic as a start anyway. So if all these things catch up during the circuit break and cases do go down and the reproduction number goes down, do you then maintain targeted restrictions in certain areas? 
that's what I was thinking would be the the way to get out of the the circuit breaker. Hopefully, they would have enough um, data informed decision making to say, well, our problems seem to be in these places, so let's keep the restrictions up there, and then just try to lighten them up in other areas, particularly areas of greater economic concern, and see if we can try to thread the needle that way. So, we all know that winter's coming. Should we expect to see these kinds of short, sharp lockdowns repeated? Or is this a one-off thing? I think it's going to really depend on whether we can get everyone on the same page with doing the core basics really well. I've seen modeling that if you can reduce your number of contacts to say 30 to 50% of your usual number of contacts, that has a huge impact on the evolution of uh, spread of COVID in the community. So if we can get a really um, engaged community response, we might be able to avoid that. If we can't, it might end up being kind of a foot on the gas, foot on the brake scenario. The advantage of, if this works out, of having that though as a tool in your toolkit is is that you can actually predict it and that you can promise it's not going to be really extended if we do it well. And I really hate to ask this question, but what happens if a circuit breaker doesn't work? It depends on how we define whether it works, because there honestly is no doubt that, you know, really um, stringent public health restrictions stop transmission. So if it doesn't work, we'd have to say, well, why didn't it work? Is it an issue of people not adhering to the recommendations or did the recommendations not go far enough? And then I think the remedy would depend on what the answer is, because at the end of the day, the virus has to move from a person to another person. And there's many examples of, you know, the effect of lockdown on reducing that transmission, on interrupting that flow. And so if it didn't work, we'd have to know why to make another plan. This, what I'm going to ask you is going to sound repetitious, but it's not to people who kind of surf in and out when it comes to paying attention to the pandemic. The idea of a circuit break is a new concept for most of us. So what key things about our personal behavior do we need to change now to make it successful? At, at the onset of a circuit breaker, I think that it would be incredibly important to have consistent messaging around people basically going back to call it, going back into their cave <laughs> and being in their home with just their nearest dearest or their roommates minimizing contacts that are unnecessary minimizing you know errands visits stopping in person social interactivity to the greatest degree that's sustainable for a short time um, so the promise there is the short time and I think that um, if you can get people to have a very significant behavior change during a circuit breaker, that is actually what the success of the whole thing rests on. It's not just saying what rules are there. It's actually people going along with the rules, understanding why, and having the same end goal in sight. And when restrictions post-circuit break ease, what can we do to keep infection rates down this winter? It becomes an issue of people strategizing about how to maintain the best quality of life possible to help us, you know, sustain the benefit from from getting back in a decent pattern for COVID transmission and still have a decent life. And so that does take a little bit of, of thinking 
maybe things like um, giving yourself a social budget about how many people you might see in person versus people that you'll try to see virtually and actually make sure that you schedule in virtual seeing of people um, because I think it really does help. Really budgeting out how you're going to manage things like groceries and errands, giving some thought to people who are shutting in and giving them assistance if you can when you're doing that. And then underneath that all, the other sustainable habits that I think people have been mostly pretty good with but might be slipping are, you know, the masking, the hand hygiene, the distancing. And now there's been, I think, more just attention to things like thinking about your ventilation and humidity. All those things add up to a whole package and you have to select the pieces that you can work on yourself and maybe try to help others with with pieces that they might need help with. Okay. Lenora Saxinger, thank you so much for speaking with us once again. My pleasure. Thank you. That was Dr. Lenora Saxinger, an infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. Here's your dose of smart advice. The swift and sharp spike in cases of COVID-19 across Canada has led doctors, public health, and some provinces to call for and implement a circuit breaker. It's a quick and nearly widespread effort to reduce COVID transmission by closing places where people gather indoors, like bars, restaurants, gyms, and businesses. A circuit breaker is like shock therapy. It's designed to grab everyone's attention so they get back to the kind of vigilance that we saw during the first wave. The kinds of things we stopped due to complacency. By definition, a circuit breaker is brief. A minimum of two and a maximum of four weeks, which is one or two times the typical period of time needed to get COVID and recover from it. Authorities are instituting circuit breakers because the reproduction or R number is 1.2 or even greater which means new cases of COVID-19 are increasing exponentially. We'll know that a circuit breaker is working if we can get the R number down to around 0.5 or 0.6, which means fewer and fewer people being infected week over week. As the winter months approach, we'll be spending most of our time inside. We need to pay attention to factors that increase indoor spread, like poor ventilation. A circuit breaker can't succeed unless all of us change our behavior. That means washing hands frequently, wearing a mask, and physical distancing. Think about putting your social time on a budget. That means reducing social contacts to those that are necessary. I know it's hard, but you need to stay home and only go out for necessary errands. It means curtailing visits or contact with anyone other than people in your household. The rise in cases and the calls for a circuit breaker are reminders that, as always, How well we do in flattening the curve depends on each of us doing our bit. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBCWhiteCoat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows so more people can find us. This episode of The Dose was produced by Nicole Ireland, Donna Dingwall, and me, with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.